Welcome. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA or the Los Angeles Radio Reading Service are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Welcome to episode 234 of LA Arts Connects, the Los Angeles Radio Reading Service's weekly arts showcase. My name is Hugh Ralston, and I'm your host and producer of this series about how the arts in Los Angeles, in California, and around the world connect us as community. Over the next hour, we want to share insights from artists across the disciplines and from arts critics and writers about the artists' institutions, programs, and events in our region and in our time, and share how the arts in all their forms connect us. I bring to this many years as an amateur choral singer and as an arts enthusiast, as well as a former museum and arts trustee, a grant maker, a collector, and as a volunteer and patron to local arts agencies. I believe in the incredibly diverse elements that sustain Los Angeles and California as leaders in the arts, and how the arts produced around the world, live, recorded, in person, online, resonate in our hearts. LA Arts can connect us from the things we hear and experience to the things that matter. Welcome to this week's show. short and gray January days, we sometimes take a step back and look at the arts through a different perspective, and perhaps with a little different insights. We start this week with an article by Nadia Beard, published on January 20th in the Financial Times of London, in their FT magazine under Life and the Arts. How does age affect creativity? What time and experience due to music is latently understood by listeners who adore late works, but curiously underexamined. To give a piano concerto of Mozart can feel like walking a tightrope with no clothes on. Without experience of the latter, of course, I'm speculating, but I was reminded of the exposure Mozart inflicts on his performers recently as I watched a recording of pianist Menahem Pressler from a few years ago. He was playing Piano Concerto No. 23 with the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, a piece whose quintessentially classic form, the thin lines of music, relentless scales, lack of excess, leaves the performer nowhere to hide. As I watched his fingers run, nimble and precise up and down the keyboard, I marveled with some envy at someone three times my age making such a flawless premiere. In fact, the trickier the passage, the more Pressler appeared to smile. At the age of 90, Pressler was the oldest performer ever to make their debut with Berlin's acclaimed Philharmonic. He had enjoyed a lifelong career as a member of the famed Beaux-Arts trio and made a smattering of solo recordings, but it took until his last decade to restyle as a solo concert pianist. It was a timely act. Pressler died last year, a few months before his 100th birthday. A new recording from American pianist Ruth Slenzinska 
further piqued my interest. Slanzinska began a long concert career in 1929, aged four, and recorded several albums in the 1950s and 1960s. In 2022, she re-entered the classical recording world with her first album for Decca Records in nearly 50 years, the multi-composer disc My Life in Music. The life in question, by the disc's release date, had spanned 97 years. In the 1990s, when I was a child taking piano lessons, the currency of the musical world, at least as told through the media, was youth. The wunderkind, the child prodigy, was fetishized as an enviable phenomenon, a kind of unspoken North Star for young musicians to follow. It was only later, when stories of abuse or burnout started to emerge, that we understood the cost of such a status, one that guarantees neither real creative expression nor a successful career in adulthood. What time and age actually do to music, to those who write it as much as those who perform it, is latently understood by many listeners who adore late works, but curiously underexamined. Less a maturing of sound or style, final compositions or performances often appear more as a reduction, the feeling of being left with the most essential expression of a person's musical ideas. There are countless historical precedents for those who found greatest invention in their later years. Beethoven, Goethe, Monet are just a few. It was while listening to Sven Sinchka's album, uninhibited and elemental as it is, that I was struck by what has changed. It's not just the idea that people are living and working for longer that caused a shift in the classical music world, but also the long-overdue broadening of the identities and figures we appreciate. If the past few decades of classical music were an era that fetishized the wunderkind, we have entered in recent years the era of the wunderalten, the older progeny. The older progeny. When I first speak to Nicola Le Fanu on the telephone from her home in York, she is a few months away from the release of a new record, which is expected to be her most important. Featuring compositions spanning more than 40 years, the disc will feature a variety of string ensembles, the piano trio, and recent work for voice composed in 2020. The British composer, now 76, began her career in the late 1960s, when the angular, stark, brightly colored music of British modernism was at its tail end. Although the kind of ensembles and constellations of instruments she has composed for varies, to listen to her oeuvre chronologically is to hear an increasing focus on voice and opera, as well as the first forays into instruments outside the Western canon. In 2014, I wrote Tokaido Road, which combined Japanese instruments with Western ones inspired by the artist Hiroshigi, she says. I had to learn to write for Japanese instruments, working with a player to ask what their instrument can and can't do. That kind of thing has been very important to me as I've gotten older. It's a chance to do something new. Looking at the history of classical music, one can see a composite arc stretching from J.S. Bach in the early 1700s to Le Fanu and her contemporaries. Each era of composition was eventually broken and remade, by the bravest of its proponents. Baroque became classical. Classical morphed into romantic. Romantic recast as contemporary. 
each of them different from the last, but unmistakably part of the same whole. It would not be an overstatement to say that the past 200 years of musical history would have taken a different course had Beethoven not lived, and crucially, aged and died. It was in the years before he died, deaf and diseased, by the age of 56 that he wrote a series of works so strange and radical that they almost single-handedly wrenched the classical era into the Romantic. By writing them, Beethoven broke from the conventions that formed him and created something no one had ever heard before. His cultural descendants, Brahms, then Wagner, later Shostakovich, and eventually Le Fanu herself, are in his debt for making their work possible. The tendency to view age and conservatism as interlinked trajectories might be convincing in the realm of politics, but they often have an inverse relationship in art, a desire to avoid repetition, receding fear of how the work will be received, and an increased awareness of time make for later work that can tend toward the radical or bold. Listening to the Chopin Etude, Opus 10, Number 3, on Slenzinska's last album, a piece she has previously recorded three times in 1957, 1978, and a live recording in 1997, I notice a change from her older interpretations that find parallel with Beethoven's final sonatas. In both, it is not only music that is of value, but the silence in between. No longer a void to be filled, the quiet has become a space in its own right. There's no rush to fill it, but rather a new awareness of the silence's potential is met by a desire to elevate it, to let it be. It is the invisible frame that makes the music make sense. Perhaps both Beethoven and Slensinska came to learn that experience does not only show us what we can do, but also what we could do, but should leave undone. Technical limitations might often become the quiet roadblocks that precipitate the end of a career, but they don't have to be. A changed physicality can be generative, a source of new musical ideas. This is something which Marilyn Richardson is now reckoning with. Having spent most of her life as an opera singer, the Australian soprano returned to the stage with the Sydney Theatre Company last year just before her 87th birthday, only this time as an actress in the Patricia Cornelius play Do Not Go Gentle. In her role as Maria, an aged Siberian émigré, Richardson sang short fragments of Grieg and Verdi arias. Despite having given her last professional performance in 1997, when the Sydney Theatre asked Richardson to return in an acting-singing role, she didn't equivocate. Being on stage always felt like home. I simply went and practiced for a few weeks to try to get back into a singing mode again, Richardson told me on the phone from her home in Queensland, Australia. You see, I don't think a singer ever stops. But it has proved an absolute challenge, Richardson says. On the one hand, it's difficult because it's a different kind of presentation, acting rather than singing, but also because I'm not young anymore, so one doesn't know exactly what one can do. What she did know was that I couldn't sing with a young voice anymore. Comfortingly, that was part of the character. Aging, confused, and struggling to adapt to her new environs, Richardson's role suited the sporadic songs, which came and went, beautiful but 
ephemeral. It was only my sense of pride that suffered a bit because I couldn't sing the way I did 20 years ago, she says. When I returned to the piano a few years ago, after a decade's hiatus, I noticed, even at the age of 30, that much of the technique I'd developed as a teenaged piano student had disappeared, and despite rigorous practice since, it has only partially returned. It was something I recognized when, while talking to Richardson, that it was exactly this limitation which forced me to look more closely at the music, understand what it is in its entirety, in order to find new ways to express it. Reduced technique has, in part, become a source of imagination. Things evolve, Lefanu says, when I ask her whether she notices if anything has been lost over time. I don't think things progress. It's like life. I don't think things get better or worse, but they do change. It's a case of evolution. It is perhaps this tension between the technical limitations of age and the creative boldness that age engenders that makes late-stage art so beguiling and emotionally precise. When I listened to the piece on Slenzinska's last album that she had previously recorded at various points throughout her life, I hear music at a slower or more expanded tempo that in different ways reveals more of the essential character of the music. The question of which came first, a new awareness of the music and the attendant will to finer articulate it, or the need to slow down, makes little sense when one understands the mutual dependence of awareness and tempo. It's precisely speed, or its absence, that offers the possibility to see detail. A sensitivity to the artistic potential of change might be the greatest knowledge the Wunder Alten possess, the idea that the hierarchy of good and bad is less instructive than seeing, in the inevitability of evolution, an opportunity to create. My earlier work was more complex than my later work, Le Fanu tells me. I can hear what she means. As I listened recently to one of her latest works from 2020, The Moth Ghost, I was rapt as the voice of the singer undulated cleanly above the piano. The pared-down architecture of the music made the abstraction clearer, the development at once powerful and surprising. Le Fanu packed in so much music, but somehow there was an abundance of space, I thought to myself. How well she hears the silence now. An article by Nadia Beard, published on January 20th in the Financial Times of London, How Does Age Affect Creativity? What time and experience do to music is latently understood by listeners who adore late works, but curiously underexamined. to a story by Reed Johnson, editor of Los Angeles Times on Espanol, published on January 26th in the Los Angeles Times. Can LA's Maria Rosario Jackson use art to heal an anxious America? Joe Biden thinks so. In her young, impressionable years in LA and Mexico City, Maria Rosario Jackson had two cultural reckonings that shaped her outlook 
as the first Mexican-American and African-American woman to serve as the nation's arts czar. One was hearing a deceptively languid 1930s protest a- anthem that conjures up the ghastly image of black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. The other was seeing a frenetic mural depicting a dapper Mexican boy holding hands with a skeletal woman in white. Both experiences arose from Jackson's bicultural birthright. Her father, an African-American from Ohio, by the way of the Jim Crow South, introduced her as a child to Billie Holiday's haunting anti-lynching ballad, Strange Fruit. I couldn't get it, and he had to explain it to me, said Jackson, a native of L.A.'s Crenshaw neighborhood, who in January 2022 took office as President Joe Biden's pick to chair the National Endowment for the Arts. It's a beautiful song, but it is deeply meaningful and disturbing. The mural encounter sprang from regular visits with Jackson's Mexican mother to Mexico City, where Diego Rivera's monumental 1947 fresco painting, Sueno de una tarde dominical en la Alameda Central, Dream of a Sunday Afternoon in Alameda Park, an uproarious hallucination of early 20th century Mexican society featuring notable historical figures, loomed on the wall of the Hotel del Prado. I would see that mural over and over and come to know it quite well, Jackson recalled. And there's the dreamy part of it, there's the macabre part of it, the political part of it. In Jackson's intersectional credo, art speaks many languages and radiates many shades of meaning. It can inspire and heal, unsettle and provoke. It can break through ideological bunkers. Rather than an ad on luxury, it's a fundamental building block of vibrant souls and just societies. Now she just has to persuade the rest of the federal government to embrace that vision. Ultimately, it's about people's life journeys, Jackson said over lunch at Mercado La Paloma in South L.A. one spring afternoon last year, speaking in the gently authoritative tone of a woman who seems born to be the adult in the room. Those are complicated. Her career, or more accurately careers, spans philanthropy, government, a think tank, and academia. It encompasses a nearly two-decade tenure at the Washington, D.C.-based think tank Urban Institute as the founding director of the Culture, Creativity, and Communities Program, an extended stay as senior advisor on arts, culture, and strategic learning at the Detroit-based deep-pocketed Kresge Foundation, and a tenured professorship at Arizona State University, where she led the Studio for Creativity, Place, and Equitable Communities, and from which she's currently on leave. In Los Angeles, where she earned a bachelor's in journalism from USC and a PhD in urban planning from UCLA, and lives with her husband, David K. Riddick, Jackson has long been a recognized thought leader around arts and community development. In the mid-2010s, she co-chaired with Tim Dang and Helen Hernandez the L.A. County Arts Commission Advisory Committee that over 18 months of town halls and marathon meetings crafted recommendations that made diversity and inclusion a cornerstone of county arts policy. Maria was always able to create a sense of calmness for folks, especially dealing with some really challenging topics like equity and inclusion. She exudes this kind of confidence, but it's this really quiet, subtle confidence, said Leticia Rebuckley, chief executive of La Plaza de Cultura y Artes in downtown L.A., 
who worked with Jackson on the county's cultural initiative and credits her with drafting policies that gave the recommendations real teeth. In her current federal role on any given day, Jackson might be strategizing with Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra or Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg about how artists and designers can, as she puts it, help to imagine policy, help us understand how things are working or not, and help imagine the communities we want to create. She might be visiting the Pine Ridge Reservation in Nebraska to learn how Native Americans are reclaiming indigenous languages or jutting off to a poetry festival of African-American female elders at Jackson State University and HBCU in Mississippi, or brainstorming with Bruce Springsteen. It was awesome, she said of her recent skull session with the boss. In a capital packed with bloviators and arm twisters, Jackson maintains an equipoise of soft-spoken graciousness, combining intellectual clarity with iron resolve. That's what's so magical about Maria's tenure. She's not sidestepping the hard questions. She's reframing them in terms of what arts can do in the most distressed or marginalized or under-optimized places, said Rip Rapson, chief executive of the Kresge Foundation, who has known Jackson for 15 years. As the third year of Jackson's appointment gets underway, her energies in Washington are focused on Arts Here, a new NEA initiative to fund and promote greater arts participation in U.S. communities in areas like health, well-being, and climate environment, and a first-of-its-kind summit on January 30th, co-hosted by the NEA and the White House Domestic Policy Council, that will explore how the arts can contribute to health and well-being, animate and strengthen physical spaces, fuel our democracy, and drive equitable outcomes for communities across the country. But between frequent flyer engagements, Jackson stays connected to her hometown. The same morning last spring, she and colleague Sonia Chala Tower met with staffers at Esperanza Community Housing Corp., a social justice nonprofit that sits in a former garment sweatshop east of USC and fosters community development within Black, Latino, immigrant, and indigenous neighborhoods. Over the last three years, Esperanza has taken in more than $100,000 in NEA grants to support events like its Afro-Latinx Festival and projects like its South Central Archive, a multimedia timeline of community stories, photo portraits, and other culturally revelatory keepsakes. Zooming into the meeting, Nancy Halper Ibrahim, Esperanza's executive director and board president, told Jackson that NEA-backed projects like these reinforce community identity and act as a cultural buffer against the voracious market forces slowly gobbling up the historically Afro-Latino neighborhood. Wendy Navarro, a young Esperanza graphic designer, videographer and founder of Grit Media, who grew up in the neighborhood, chimed in that the NEA's support has been crucial to Esperanza's post-pandemic recovery. The arts were really important in creating these spaces for healing as we were coming out of COVID, Navarro told Jackson, because we were expecting losses, losing loved ones, neighbors losing their jobs. Shortly after her session at Esperanza, Jackson headed over to Little Tokyo to meet with staff at East West Players, the nation's longest-running Asian-American theater. She wrapped up her day at HOLA, Heart of Los Angeles, a nonprofit on the edge of Lafayette Park, whose stated mission isn't to find the next Gustavo Dudamel, 
but to give underserved kids an equal chance to succeed through a comprehensive array of after-school, academic, arts, athletics, and wellness programs. More than 98% of students who attend HOLA programs graduate high school, and more than 95% go on to higher education. The NEA's annual $50,000 in funding, the most from any government source, has been crucial to meeting those goals, HOLA Chief Executive Tony Brown told Jackson. It isn't just about giving someone access to the arts, he said. It's about giving access to excellence through the arts. Without these types of resources that we receive from the NEA, I think we'd be less of a quality organization, more of a let's serve as many kids as possible and just get them through. Conservative Beltway pundits might puzzle why the head of a federal arts agency would drop by a South L.A. community development center instead of, say, a symphony hall or an art museum. But as Jackson sees it, art must serve as more than a source of sublime sensual pleasures. By integrating art into other policy areas, public health, transportation, housing and homelessness, the environment, veterans affairs, community development, Jackson believes we'd be better able to solve complex problems, create healthy communities where all people could thrive, and encourage all Americans to lead what she calls vidas artisticas, artful lives. I think we're emerging from a time when we've had to adjust our lifestyles to reimagine work, reconsider what it means to care for each other as a nation, Jackson said during her keynote address at the USC Center on Philanthropy and Public Policy's speaker series in a hotel dining hall filled with Angelino power players. It's a tall bureaucratic order, even for a woman with Jackson's formidable resume and contact network, especially in an era when COVID has scared audiences away from live performance, and many creatives struggle to survive, let alone thrive. But her idea that culture can be a teammate, not merely a colorful sidekick, in White House policymaking fits the priorities of Biden, who issued an executive order in September 2022 that all executive departments, federal agencies, and White House policy councils should look for ways to partner with the NEA, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Institute of Museum and Library Services. That same executive order revived the President's Committee on the Arts and the Humanities, which had been shut down after its members resigned en masse to protest then-President Trump's equivocation at the neo-Nazi demonstrations that erupted in Charlottesville, Virginia in August 2017. Jackson notes that Biden has described artists as truth-tellers, bridge-builders, and change-seekers. I can't imagine an area of policy or practice that can't benefit from an infusion of that, she said. Jackson's ideals suffused the L.A. community where she was raised. On weekends, her family would attend Catholic Mass, then visit her nearby grandparents. Other times, they'd cruise the museums in Exposition Park or hang out in the mid-city black artist enclave of St. Elmo Village. Later, Jackson learned about African-American artists like Elizabeth Catlett, who developed a profound connection to Mexican art, lived in Mexico for 60 years, and told Ebony Magazine in 1970 that I am inspired by black people and Mexican people, my two peoples, an identity that Jackson shares. She's fond of describing her father, a postal service worker, and her mother, a bilingual ed specialist for the L.A. Unified School District, as 
lifelong tourists in their adopted cities. So there was this really wonderful curiosity about the city, Jackson said. And there was trepidation, too, because certainly with my father's experience coming out of Jim Crow, he was conscious that we were different. And there were places where maybe we didn't belong. Colleagues and collaborators say that Jackson brings that same inquisitive spirit to her work with the NEA, overseeing an independent agency of the U.S. government funded by Congress, with a budget this year of $211 million, and a staff of 168. Her personal heritage has helped the NEA's stepped-up efforts at engaging Latino-serving arts organizations. The NEA is known primarily as a dispenser of peer-reviewed grants to nonprofit arts organizations, public arts agencies, colleges and universities, federally recognized tribal communities, and individual writers and translators. That primary function will continue, Jackson pledges, but she also maintains that NEA shouldn't be a synonym for ATM. We have grant money, she says, but we also have other currencies, other capacities that we can make available. The ability to convene, the ability to seed national conversations. In this particular time, hopefully the creation of environments where we can harvest some of the lessons of the last few years as we imagine what the next version of the sector needs to look like. Despite the brass-knuckled atmosphere in contemporary Washington, Jackson's NEA thus far has steered clear of the cultural smackdowns that marred the late 1980s and 90s when Senator Jesse Helms, Republican North Carolina, railed against avant-garde provocateurs like Tim Miller and John Fleck, the two SoCal-based members of the so-called NEA-4 who, along with Karen Finley and Holly Hughes, sued the agency after it withdrew their fellowships under pressure from Capitol Hill conservatives. What Jackson can't tune out is the ticking clock of her tenure. When she meets with a Biden cabinet member, the first thing she tells them is, we don't have much time. There is a window of opportunity that we need to seize. Her perpetual equanimity belies the sense of pragmatic urgency. Although she's fond of saying that art process can be as important as, or in some cases even more important, than art product, she's aware that budget-scrutinizing politicians and dollar-stretching art administrators may care more about data-driven results than soul-nurturing quests. I think what she's trying to do may or may not be achievable, which is to develop a zone in which the role of arts and culture in the work of the other agencies is so clearly compelling and vital that it becomes almost self-evident that that's the way we ought to work, Rapson said. I think we're seeing that a little bit as a society at the local level. It's hard to imagine now high-functioning local communities without vibrant, interconnected local cultural scenes in all of the complexity of the ecology. Big institutions and medium-sized institutions and grassroots institutions but I don't think that is as self-apparent to federal agencies. Jackson knows what can happen when good policy gets stuck on the drawing board while society slumbers. On April 29, 1992, when the L.A. uprising broke out in the wake of four LAPD officers being acquitted in the beating of black motorist Rodney King, she was at City Hall interviewing a bureaucrat for her Ph.D. dissertation. He told Jackson that she'd better head home because the trial verdict was about to be delivered, and it's about to jump off in the streets of L.A. So, I went home, Jackson recalled, and things jumped off. The title of her thesis? 
Comprehensive Community Development in the Multi-Ethnic Inner City, Jackson replied, managing a smile. A few weeks shy of the uprising's 31st anniversary last year, on another drizzly spring day, Jackson agrees to meet at Simply Wholesome, the much-loved Googie-style Afrocentric Slauson Avenue Emporium that survived the 92 uprising largely because it was Black-owned. It's a hive of community-focused entrepreneurship and neighborhood pride. Stevie Wonder shows up and jams there sometimes. People go and congregate and chat and chew and dream up stuff, Jackson said, sipping a pineapple ginger tonic and munching a Jamaican patty. Jackson grew up 10 minutes away from Simply Wholesome and still lives nearby. Her elementary school, St. John the Evangelist and St. Mary's Academy in Inglewood, the all-girls Catholic high school she attended, are also about 10 minutes away. One of the most artistically gifted people Jackson ever knew was her older brother, who worked for LAUSD and died of congestive heart failure in 2014. He was very smart, very talented had some mental health issues, Jackson said, could play piano by ear, could hear something and play it. Also, he had a beautiful voice, booming, beautiful voice. He liked many different kinds of music, practicing opera sometimes. He had a fascination with Enrico Caruso. Does the nation's premier culture advocate feel she's living the kind of artful life she champions? I think so. I try to, she says. She has dabbled in ceramics since high school, but that takes time. It's a commitment. I wish I had more time for that. Jackson paused. I think this idea of artful lives shows up in my life, she said. Whether it's making a home or creating special experiences when friends or family are over, that kind of thing. Trying to be a steward of some traditions that are particularly meaningful. That's part of an artful life. Once again, she turned the conversation to the NEA. We're responsible for bringing something that I think is so essential to have meaningful lives. It's tending to your humanity. That's important stuff. Outside, the rain was easing up. Another long day stretched ahead for the woman trying to help an uneasy country slow down long enough to listen and look together. An article by Reed Johnson, who is editor Los Angeles Times on Espanol, published on January 26th in the LA Times. Can LA's Maria Rosario Jackson use art to heal an anxious America? Joe Biden thinks so. turn to the world of music now and an article by Richard Fairman published on the 14th of December, the best classical albums of 2023 from Bird and Mozart to Rogers and Hammerstein. The Symphonia of London claims two places on our critics list alongside music ancient and new. Ravel's Daphne and Chloe by the Symphonia of London. The Symphonia of London reaches new heights. This hand-picked recording orchestra, reformed by conductor John Wilson, brings playing of exceptional delicacy and precision to Ravel's much-loved orchestral showpiece. Sumptuously recorded 
and using a new edition by Wilson, it is an album that promises to set the standard for a generation. Bird, the Golden Renaissance by Stille Antico. This year marked the 400th anniversary of the death of William Byrd, a leading composer of the English Renaissance. Stile Antico takes his Mass for Four Voices, a Catholic masterpiece written covertly during the Protestant era of Queen Elizabeth I, and interleaves it with other pieces by Byrd in expressive, scrupulously balanced performances. Mozart Piano Concertos number 21 and 24 by Robert Levin. After a 20-year hiatus, forte piano specialist Robert Levin and the Academy of Ancient Music have come together again to complete their promising cycle of Mozart's piano concertos, marvelously spontaneous performances of two of the greatest concertos, conducted by Richard Egar, take them one step closer to fulfillment. Silvestrov, Silent Songs, Konstantin Kreml, and Helene Grimaud. Last year, following Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, composer Valentin Silvestrov fled Kiev to take refuge in Berlin, where he celebrated his 85th birthday. On this disc, baritone Konstantin Kreml and pianist Helene Grimaud perform around half of his silent songs from 1977, music that is eloquent in its plangent simplicity. Puccini's Turandot, Antonio Papano. Opera recordings made in a studio are a rarity these days. Antonio Papano has been working through a Puccini cycle for nearly 30 years and has arrived at an impressive Turandot. Sandra Radvanovsky, Er Monela Yaho, and Jonas Kaufmann are the star cast, but the blazing orchestral detail unleashed by Papano almost steals the show. Compositrices. Although women composers are at last getting more attention, there have been few discoveries as encyclopedic as this. Across eight discs, the legacy of 21 French Romantic composers is explored, from those relatively well-known, such as Cécile Chaminade and Nadia Boulanger, to forgotten figures, including Charlotte Sohi and Jeanne d'Anglas. Adesh Dante, the Los Angeles Philharmonic. The Dante Project, a full-length ballet with music by Thomas Adish and choreography by Wayne McGregor, had its premiere by the Royal Ballet in 2021. Here, entitled Dante, is Adish's score, as vividly pictorial as Tchaikovsky's ballets, given a knockout performance by Gustavo Dudamel and the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra. Handel, Coronation Anthems, the Académie für Alte Musik Berlin. The Académie für Alte Musik Berlin's recording of Handel's four coronation anthems was timed to mark the coronation of King Charles III in May this year. These uplifting Baroque anthems are the high watermark of music for royalty. More pomp and swagger may be found elsewhere, but Justin Doyle leads lively and stylish performances. Bach Goldberg Variations by Vikingur Olafsson. It's been 25 years since Vikingur Olafsson decided he wanted to record Bach's Goldberg Variations. This project, long in the making, has resulted in a striking performance with much of the boldly projected public showpiece about it, but the sometimes racing speeds are matched by Olafsson's clarity of articulation 
and intellectual grip. And Rogers and Hammerstein, Oklahoma by the Sinfonia of London. Turn back the clock to Broadway, 1943. Although there are many recordings of Oklahoma, none stays as close to Rogers and Hammerstein's original as this, using the same orchestration as on the first night, and with instruments of the time, conductor John Wilson recreates the period sound and style with a fine cast and irresistible verb. An article by Richard Fairman, published in the Financial Times of London on the 14th of December, the best classical albums of 2023, and they include Ravel's Daphnis and Chloe by the Sinfonia of London, Bird, the Golden Renaissance by Stile Antico, Mozart's Piano Concertos Number no. 21 and 24 by Robert Levin, Silvestrov's Silent Songs with Constantin Krimmel and Helene Grimaud, Puccini's Turandot by Antonio Papano, Compostrici's Eight Discs of 21 French Romantic Composers, Adish's Dante by the Los Angeles Philharmonic, Handel's Coronation Anthems by the Académie für Alte Musik Berlin, and Rodgers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma, recorded by the Sinfonia of London. next article also focuses on classical music by, written by Hanlon Brown, published on January 14th in the Financial Times, Life of a Song. Canon and D, 300 years on, Pachelbel's melody is still circulating. The German composer's simple interlocking round has been adapted by acts such as The Farm and The Village People. The godfather of all pop music is how producer Pete Waterman describes Pachelbel's Canon and D. Written for three violins and basso continuo by German composer Johann Pachelbel, 1653-1706, in the late 17th or early 18th century, this simple interlocking round, built from just eight notes, has been recycled as the basis of songs by The Beatles, Green Day, Coolio, Maroon 5, The Farm, Christine, and The Queens, and even, some argue, the anthem of the Russian Federation, and previously the Soviet Union. Commonly played at wedding services and possibly written for the nuptials of his student, Johann Christoph Bach, Johann Sebastian's older brother, the melody feels hard-baked into Western culture. But Pachelbel's canon languished in obscurity for a couple of centuries before being rediscovered in the 1950s Baroque revival, in which Vivaldi's The Four Seasons was dusted off. By the 1980s, it was being embraced by corporate telephone hold systems around the world, containing customer frustration in a context of deeper time and more disciplined emotional expression. We don't know much about Pachelbel's life. He was born in Nuremberg and studied the basics of the Nuremberg musical tradition under Heydrich Schwemmer, later known as the chief singer of St. Sebaldus Church. Pachelbel's family struggled to fund his musical studies, but thanks to a combination of diligence and talent, he graduated as court organist for the Duke of Saxa-Eisenach. 
He is believed to have written more than 200 organ works in many vocal pieces, although he is now remembered more as a one-hit wonder. This was a fate satirized in a 2017 BBC Radio 4 sketch by comedian John Finnermore, in which the composer laments that while he tries to serve up a smorgasbord of subtle flavors, all his audience demand is an avalanche of semiquavers round and around like an endless game of pass the parcel, all with the grace of a bison in a bouncy castle. In 2019, American composer Kent Tritle told the New York Times that what shifted Pachelbel's canon into the mainstream was the 1968 recording by French conductor Jean-Francois Payard. This ran at half the speed of other versions, encouraging listeners to drift into emotionally flexible reveries. In 1980, its popularity was boosted by its use in the Oscar-winning film Ordinary People, starring Mary Tyler Moore and directed by Robert Redford. That may have inspired the use of another Baroque piece, Jeremiah Clark's Prince of Denmark's March, at the 1981 wedding of Prince Charles and Princess Diana. The restrained pomp of Baroque was officially in, and for many wedding-goers, its popularity went on and on. In 1981, a New Yorker cartoon featured a prisoner tormented by repeated planes of the piece. Every classical musician to whom I mention the canon groans. It's awful, they moan. So repetitive, the cellist gets the worst of it. This repetitive strain was the theme of Pachelbel Rant, a comedy skit performed by comedian and former child cellist Rob Paravonian in 2006. But those in the pop world still love it. In 1968, France-based Greek band Aphrodite's Child scored an emotive pan-European pop hit with Rains and Tears, the first of many chart hits to use Pachelbel's pattern as a backdrop to modern emotions. The first time I clocked it on a dance floor was at a school disco when the DJ spun the farms all together now, 1990, the Liverpool band turning the melody into an arms-aloft celebration of unity. But you can hear the same spinal chords, more or less obviously, holding up Alexander Alexandrov's National Anthem of the Soviet Union, subsequently adopted as the current Russian anthem. Ralph McTell's Streets of London, 1969, The Beatles' Let It Be, 1970, The Village People's 1979 gay anthem, Go West, covered by the Pet Shop Boys in 1993, Green Day's Basket Case, 1994, Oasis's Don't Look Back in Anger, 1996, Coolio's 1997 See You When You Get There, and Maroon 5's Memories. 2019. With a little effort, you can hear it underpinning Kyle Minogue's 1987 hit, I Should Be So Lucky, co-produced by Pete Waterman. Last summer, trans artist Christine and the Queens used the piece to give classical structure to ongoing tensions of the trans experience on Full of Life. Over the secure old violin patterns, the artist-born Eloise Letissier now identifying as Redcar, using male pronouns, saying, Take my hand and forget that I'm just another woman. Even though you see me, you'll never let me be your boyfriend. It's an exhilarating, courageous delivery that slots the modern 
gender debate into a chord sequence more than 300 years old. The major-minor chord struggle for self-social acceptance held in an enduring structure of love. The paperback edition of The Life of a Song, the stories behind 100 of the world's best love songs, edited by David Cheel and Jan Daly, is published by Chambers. This article by Helen Brown was published on January 14, 2024, in the Financial Times. Canon and D, 300 years on, Pachelbel's melody is still circulating. Turn now to the world of painting and museums with an article by Cami Brothers, published on January 20th in the Wall Street Journal. Pesolino, a Renaissance master revealed, is an overlooked Florentine no longer. London's National Gallery mounts a small but delightful show about the 15th century painter who, in his work for the Medici and other leading families, encapsulated the best of his era's artistic achievements. Dateline, London. The Medici family fostered some of the greatest talents of the 15th century, from Donatello and Botticelli to the young Michelangelo. But they also nurtured lesser-known artists with distinct talents, ones who usher us into a broader appreciation of the artistic qualities prized by Florentine patrons. Among these was Francesco Pesellino, circa 1422-57, who gained a name for himself as a painter of animals and of luxury furniture items such as cassoni, or chess, and spalieri, shoulder rests. He built a thriving career working for the Medici and other leading families and collaborating with some of the most prominent artists of his time, such as Fra Filippo Lippi. But an early death and difficulty attributing his works has left him largely overlooked. Now, London's National Gallery is reintroducing him to the world in a small, dense, and delightful show. Pasolino, a Renaissance master, revealed his first monographic exhibition to date. Or, perhaps as the British might say, Pasolino, a Renaissance master, revealed. Organized by the museum's Laura Llewellyn and consisting of nine paintings and one drawing, the show is anchored by the museum's own Pistoia Santa Trinita altarpiece, 1455-60, and its two cassone panels depicting the story of David and Goliath and the Triumph of David, circa 1452-55, both of which have recently undergone conservation. The process is revealed in a video on the museum's website. These are supplanted by works from museums in the U.S. and Europe. Any writer will tell you that to keep a story moving forward, you have to focus on the main plot. Tangents get in the way. Besides inventing new modes of representation, most Renaissance artists were also great storytellers, organizing their compositions hierarchically so that the main point registered clearly and was amplified by supporting details. Not Pesolino, who 
broke the central rules of narrative painting. Take the two David and Goliath panels that form the centerpiece of the exhibition. Every element, from the horses to the dogs, the hats, the fine clothing, and the landscape, is treated as if it is a major plot point. All the tangents are fascinating, and rather than diverting the viewer from the main events, they provide multiple enlightening paths through them. Every horse and rider, and there are dozens, is in effect a double portrait. Pesolino's paintings are vividly auditory and sensory, with bugles blowing, dogs barking, and soldiers marching in the background. They are also gleaming with bling. Cassoni were often used as wedding chests and presented as gifts. Appropriately, then, there are many uses of tooled gold and silver throughout the panels. Although the theorist and architect Leon Battista Alberti had derided the use of gold as a visual trick in his 1435 treatise on painting, it continued to be requested by patrons. Pesolino weaves gold and silver into the entire composition in dogs' collars, horses' bridles and shoes, men's hats and sleeves, soldiers' armor, women's dresses. While the specific patron of these panels is not known, a number of Medici emblems and symbols suggest a link to the family. As residents of a small city surrounded by enemies and rivals, Florentines found the story of David and Goliath spoke to them, and the Medici embraced it as a way of linking their destiny with the cities. A visitor could easily spend an hour or more studying the details and allowing the complexity of individual panels to sink in. The paintings are worth lingering over in part because it takes time to recognize exactly how Pesolino excelled in 15th century Florence, an intensely competitive environment. Unlike some of his rivals, Pesolino did not offer any obvious novelties in his paintings. There's no virtuosic use of perspective like Uccello. There are no exquisitely wrought young bodies like Pisanello or exceptionally beautiful youths like Botticelli. Instead, Pesolino built upon the strengths of earlier traditions, displaying much of the surface liveliness, strong contrasting colors, and generous use of gold that were typical of Sienese painters of the previous century, such as Pietro and Ambrogio Lorenzetti and Simone Martini. The basis of viewers, curators, and historians is often for innovators. The bias of viewers, curators, and historians is often for innovators. But Pesolino was a traditionalist who won favor by encapsulating the best of 15th century artistic achievements. Among the most visually enchanting paintings is a single square format work depicting an unusual subject, the journey of King Melchior to the Holy Land. Although the Magi are omnipresent in nativity scenes bearing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, painters rarely depict how they got there. But a visual tradition developed around each of the three Magi, Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. In the painting here, King Melchior is clearly distinguishable by his crown, throne, and gold-embellished garments, but he competes for attention with all the other vivid figures, the ship's sails, the rolling waves, the pointy mountains, and the ominous pink and gray sky.
The last painting, the Pistoia Altarpiece, completed by Fra Filippo Lippi after Pestellino's death, points in a new direction, with monumental figures and dramatically foreshortened angels flying in and out, and suggests where Pestellino's work might have gone if he'd had more time. But the show also calls into question some of our modern aesthetic preferences, particularly the idea that less is more. Sometimes more is more. And if there is any artist to demonstrate that, Pesolino is an excellent candidate. A review by Cammie Brothers, who is a professor at Northeastern University and author of Giuliano de Sangallo and the Ruins of Rome, published by the Princeton University Press. This review, a Renaissance master revealed, Pesolino, was published on January 20th in the Wall Street Journal and focuses on a small but delightful show at London's National Gallery. And that wraps up this episode 234 of LA Arts Connects, a program designed for the Los Angeles radio reading service to expand access to the ways that artists and the arts, local arts institutions and arts organizations around the world can connect us across the airways and across the Los Angeles basin, crossing boundaries, exploring ideas, deepening culture and our understanding of history, diving into the power of art and of artists, and expanding the potential in what it means to be human, to be alive in our time and in community with others. Please send us your comments at www.lars.org, L-A-R-R-S, or email us at one word, Reading at gmail.com. Please give us suggestions of topics to share in a future broadcast, what a favorite story you heard meant to you, or what you think of the broadcast itself. LA Arts can connect us from the things we hear and experience to the things that matter. I'm Hugh Ralston, your host. Thanks for joining us. Until the next time.